0: Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 29. I am your host, Andrew Gross of Newsday, on Twitter at agrossnewsday. And again, as I said in the last podcast, uh, I hope everyone is staying as healthy as possible, staying as indoors as possible, uh, social distancing as much as possible. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, as we speak, uh, today is April 14th on my end. I don't know when you will listen to this, but uh, it is April 14th here in Shea Gross. And uh, so that puts us a month and two days since The NHL season went on pause, and today, April 14th, uh, the NHL announced it was extending its self quarantine guidelines for its players. Uh, the, the extension actually, it was originally March 27th and then they extended it to March, uh, to April 15th. Now it's been extended to April 30th, which puts it in line with President Trump's, uh, you know, nationwide guidelines for social distancing. And, uh, certainly the expectation probably is that by April 30th, we're not going to really, you know, probably not going to be a huge difference two weeks from today anyway. So this may be extended into May. Uh, That would be, you know, probably an educated guess on my part, just based on uh, seeing what's going on. Um, But uh, anyway, so yeah, you know, we're, we're still waiting to see whether or not this NHL season will resume. Drew Doughty of the Los Angeles Kings Uh, on a conference call uh, the other day certainly threw some water on it by saying uh, he he couldn't see the season restarting. And I I think there is certainly a lot of pessimism creeping in uh, to everyone's thoughts as to whether sports is going to resume. I mean, I'm seeing there was that report, uh, I believe, uh, in the New York Times uh, by one of the medical experts saying, uh, you know, they didn't expect uh, concerts and uh, these big sporting events and, uh, you know, large gatherings of people. They didn't expect that to be able to resume until the fall of 2021. So, you are you know, you're looking at, you know, over a year from now. But, uh, you know, I, I, the, certainly the NHL is trying to stay a lot more optimistic than that. The Senators' uh, um, uh, GM came out today and, and said he certainly expects to see hockey being played again. Islanders' boss... Lou Lamarillo has remained hopeful that that no, hopeful or optimistic that that hockey will resume and uh, Matthew Barzell, on a conference call with some islander uh, beat reporters uh, at the end of last week uh, kind of echoed that optimism saying you know he was not thinking about his contract status or you know starting up any contract negotiations with Lou Lamarillo Um, and he is instead focused on what he needs to do to be ready uh, when the season does resume so uh, you know Islander players probably following the lead of their boss trying to stay optimistic that play will resume uh, at some point this season still no idea what kind of format that would be in. Gary Bettman has said on two television interviews, nothing's been ruled out, nothing's been ruled in. Um, The league has acknowledged that one of the scenarios which has been reported on is something under consideration, which is just sequestering everyone in one big area. You know, be it Saskatoon or North Dakota or Buffalo or New Hampshire, somewhere they where they can house basically the whole league and just run its operations from one site. Still a lot of hurdles before we can get to that point, a lot of unknowns. And, you know, at the minimum, it's probably going to be. Uh, until the end of this month, April, before the NHL can even get to a a place where it has any clarity on making a decision. But um, in the meantime, uh, if you saw Sunday's Newsday, uh, you saw the back page, the iconic photo taken by uh, Newsday photographer David Pokras of uh, Bob Nystrom's Overtime winning goal in Game Six of the 1980 Stanley Cup Final against the Flyers. And uh, Newsday is doing a continuing series on the 1980 Stanley Cup champion Islanders, uh, that being the first of four Stanley Cups for the franchise. We're going back and uh, you know talking to some of the players. I've I've chatted with Dennis Potvin, chatted with Clark Gillies. Have previous interviews with Mike Bossy and John Uh, Tonelli. Got Butch Goring back on the phone. And uh, also, as you're going to hear in today's podcast, uh, a long-form interview with uh, former goalie Chico Resch, who's now a a radio analyst for the New Jersey Devils. But Chico was a member of that 1980 Stanley Cup final uh, championship team. And uh, he gives his thoughts on... What happened that season, and uh, a <laughs> bunch of funny stories as well. Chico's a great storyteller, and uh, always enjoy catching up and and chatting with him. And as you guys know, I was on the Devil's Beat for a couple of seasons with Chico. Uh, i had known him before that, but uh, just a wonderful, sweet man who who always likes helping people out, and just uh, really enjoyed getting to know Chico over the years, and certainly couple of years with him traveling on the devil speed. So uh always good catching up with him. Really enjoyed my chat. I hope you guys enjoy the chat as well. As I say, this series is ongoing. Coming up will be a uh story on just why the 1980 team succeeded whereas the uh you know in 78 they had that awful loss to the Toronto Maple Leafs in seven games in 79 they lose to the Rangers in uh, six games. So uh, why did the 1980 team succeed? Um, They finished fifth in the standings, whereas the year before they had the most points in the league, but they're upset by the rival Rangers. So looking at that, gonna do a story on that very physical Boston series in the uh, quarterfinals. They beat the Bruins in five games and uh that that was sort of a turning point you know one of the one of the issues with the Islanders and that loss to the maple leafs in seventy eight was and, and the guys acknowledged us freely. they just weren't you know equipped or not equipped, but they just did not play a physical enough game and that was a lesson learned and it came to fruition in that boston series and in 1980, where the Islanders kind of put the rest of the league on notice that, yeah, they could play that game if they had to. And, uh, you know, the, the Islanders were never really intimidated again. And, uh, so we're going to look at that series, uh, long chat with Dennis Potvan. I got a lot of wonderful stories from a lot of different guys about Billy Smith. So probably do a story on Billy Smith, uh, coming up, uh, You know, just wherever this series takes me, you know, the guys have been really, really uh, generous with their time. So I have a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories, and we'll be rolling these stories out. They'll be appearing in uh, Newsday's coming up probably over the next month at least or so. So, uh, you know, you can look forward to that. But to to give you a taste of uh, where the series is going... Uh, like I said, I chatted with Chico and we just went up and down the map talking about the nineteen eighty New York Islanders that first Stanley Cup run. I hope you enjoy it. You know, obviously in seventy-five you, you you know, as as really a very young developing team, you make it all the way to the semifinals and then you know, there are those disappointing playoff losses in seventy-eight and seventy-nine and Just how did that set up for 1980, and what made that the team to finally break through?
1: Well, I think, um, you know, disappointment and underachieving, um, it it creates motivation. And, you know, the thing was, Andrew, most players, they're never going to give you an honest answer. But players know, no, I'm just saying, like, players know if you're better than the other team. And we honestly looked at other teams. I mean, the Canadians were great, obviously, in the seventies, but we were the only team that could beat them. Um, but, but my point is we didn't think like, you know, we're just overachieving. We really thought we had the goods and, and you've heard this, but the greatest, you know, there's so many, there's so many levels of, People staying with it, people making tough decisions. I think of Bill Tory staying with with uh, Al Arbor. I mean, before we got butchy, we we struggled in the middle. I think in like I'm not sure if it was December, January, February, somewhere in there. And then you know, I just remember one sign in the Coliseum. It said, "Trade Arbor, not our players." Wow. Uh, you know, so I'm just saying. It was building up where everybody was sick and tired of losing and underachieving. So we had that motivation going. And the cool thing is, no one had ever really lost confidence in Bill or Al. It wasn't like people were saying, well, we can't win with Al as a coach or you know, whatever. The usual player complaint. So my point is though, the belief was there. The hunger was increasing. Um, but that was, we had some of that the years before.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: uh, the only, I mean, the big differences, I think, uh, and one involved me was we got Butch Goring, and as you know, we, we had seen Toronto do it to us, and then the Rangers, they checked the top line. You know, we couldn't get the kind of scoring we needed uh, out of that second line. Every, you know, there was, those guys were still around, but that centerpiece... That centerman that was so special, you know, like Butchie was, uh, is what we needed, and so that was one thing. And then um, before the playoffs, we had a meeting, and Al was so good to me and Smitty, and he had said, "Guys, um, I know why I've given you both a chance in, in every playoff, but but this year, if one of you get hot, we, we got to go with you." And of course, both Smitty and I agreed, right? Yeah and uh and then uh we lost the first game to la at home and no no we didn't i i thought i was going to start it's just funny fate i thought i was going to start yeah because i had had a real strong finish but so did smitty so smitty started and we we beat the kings very easily and then i got the second game and um and then we were just flat which you know as a player you're always worried oh i hope we We don't come out flat because we beat them so easy. Anyway, we lost at home against the Kings the second game. Yeah. And then, ironically, Smitty had played for the L.A. Kings and he had a special feel against them. You know, it was just how some players had have teams' numbers or just feel good. And so then we went out to L.A. and Smitty won and then Al said, hey, I got to keep going. And, you know, Smitty and I were really good friends, still are. And at that point, that's what I'm talking about, sick and tired of losing. I, I don't know if any of us, at least I, I didn't care. I mean, I wanted to play. We just wanted to win. Like, it was sort of the selfishness was gone out of our team because chaos could arise if, if the guys in the room started pointing fingers, but, but the quality guys on that team, oh my, we'd been through a lot. Um, and so, there was no, there was no going to point fingers. We would just had to do, you know what was um, the most important thing, and, and then the the other thing is Smitty, who was man, a few words, but really you knew where he stood. Right. He wasn't going to start talking, and it was going to be complicated and wondering what, what points he trying to make. He just got up. We had a we had a team meeting. Mm. I don't know, sometime before the playoffs, maybe a week or two, or maybe even in that midst of this struggle. I'm not sure exactly the timeline, but we were all just talking about, you know, how we got to be a family, which we were, and we got, you know, we we were grabbing at things, and, uh, you know, the Pirates had just won world championship, and their theme song, We Are Family. Yeah. And, but Smitty, I'll still remember it, Andrew, Smitty gets up, and he says, you know, That sounds okay, but there's some BS in that. He said, listen, boys, we're not each other's family. You're not my family. I got my family. You got your family. Here's what we do have, though. We got one goal. And here's the deal. That other team is going to try to beat us, take money out of our pockets, whatever it takes. And he said, so what we got to do. We have got to do whatever we need to do for each other. If it's fighting, if it's, he said, we just you know getting cut, getting bleeding, you know, and spitty got <laughs> some blood over the bloodshed over in career, which you know was part of his game. But my point was, he just cut to the chase. Where no, no, let's forget all the all the glitzy, or not the glitzy, but the flowery, you know, sayings and. No, we just go out. You get hurt, and basically this way you get hurt for me, I'll get hurt for you. We'll hurt the other team. We'll win. And I, and he sat down, Andrew, and that was the end of it. Nobody followed him because there was nothing more to say.
0: That was in the weeks leading up to the uh, to that playoff run, right? Yes. Yeah. Yep.
1: You know, as much as I mean, you go down the list, um, boy. There were so many heroes, so many sub. Uh, sub-stories going on, and, you, you you know, I don't know who won, who won the MVP that, that year?
0: Oh, uh, was, was that, was that Uh
1: It could have been Brian, the first one, you couldn't look, yeah. but, you know, Brian could have won it, Butchie could have, Clarkie for what he did, you know, with O'Reilly and the Boston series, it just goes down the list, but the bottom line was Smitty, Smitty, smitty got to a place in his concentration andrew yeah. that very few athletes can get you know, the great ones the great ones do where there is absolutely zero distraction i would see him sit in that room and he'd get in there about five thirty, and he would just sit and look now it was interesting andrew he wasn't thinking of the game i asked him about Eight nine years ago, he says. I said, "We're well, like, were you concentrating?" No, he said. I nah, was just kind of relaxing, just trying to keep my mind uh, yeah. not on hockey. I was thinking of you know this and that, and so. But then, when the game started, he had the ability to absolutely be of one focus, and that was not only to stop the puck. But to have a physical presence in the net mm-hmm. that, that – well, I don't know if any other goalies ever had that physical presence that Smitty had. Hexed um, all a little bit, but um, – so anyway, you know, the interesting thing about Smitty, Andrew, is he just did it. He didn't like – he didn't – Oh, none of us had really goalie coaches. He didn't analyze – what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that? Smitty was one of those remarkable athletes that um, what he did, he didn't know why. Like, it wasn't like someone taught him or he thought through the whole process of, well, a guy's in this situation. I mean, he did. He, he, there were a couple things, like he the poke check he really liked. But my point is, I watched him, and he just did it. For instance, when he hit the ice, there was no room under him right right he, he, he was on this game pucks weren't going through him when he was hot his hands were moving well but my point is it's it just like when I you know you'd ask Bobby Orr or you ask Wayne Gretzky well, well how did you learn that or why did you do that and they just say I, I don't know I, I just did it the I mean obviously there's some sense of thinking through the process and um and, and figuring out what works and what doesn't, but with Smitty it was very basic goaltending, but fortunately for him most of what he did was the right thing to do in that situation. I mean, another thing, yeah, it was tough in front of the net, it was a war in front of the net just with Gordy Lane and Bammer and, you know, Denny, all those guys but then you had Smitty there
0: yeah. so I'm just saying that
1: Smitty's presence really was a was a factor as well. And then beyond, besides that, I mean, he had to play well, and he played really, really well. And I, I don't, I think I only played for, I don't know how many games it was, but you know, at that point, there isn't anything else except, you know, like if a if a team that should have won the cup just sort of doesn't, and then they break it up, kind of like the Rangers, you know, in the 70s, they should have won a cup and yeah. didn't so we knew there was only two alternatives one win the cup or this thing is gonna you know eventually be broken up and so i I will say this andrew that group of teammates were probably the most honest group of athletes i've ever been with you know one of the other turning points happened earlier um uh Denny Potfan then he came in and he was kind of well he he thought he was as good as Bobby Orr and and a lot of his stats and so forth you know showed that he if he wasn't the best he was certainly a close second to Orr. Yep. But Denny had a confidence that would would step over into a little bit of arrogance and it was an era where Joe Namath and all the New York guys were outspoken and they were you know what i mean they were it, it, it wasn't the same. Everybody humble, keep your mouth shut. So Denny would say some things that uh, because you're not winning, you would you would rub some of the players the wrong way. And uh, then there was an article through Team Canada '76. And why I say this is important because after that, and Denny got a lot of criticism, not so much from the us, but from the press. I remember we were out at the old rink, there racket rink, and. Then he called us in after the practice and stood in front of us and apologized, apologized for being so self-centered. He had tears in his eyes, It was really a heartfelt, I am sorry, guys, and I am going to change. And he won us all over. Why that was important is because. I think it was the cup here. When, you you find out when Clark Gillies gave up his Yeah,
0: no, uh, it was it was just 2 days before I think it was uh, 2 days before the start of the season uh or at some point in training camp before that 7980 season. And yes. then and then they decided Denny would be the captain, but he got he was hurt at the beginning of the year anyway, if if I remember.
1: Yeah, I think you're right, but but my point is if Denny hadn't did what he did you know a couple of years later and won us over yeah i don't know that we would have been super happy about that like you know you thought well it could have been Trocho, well he was younger and yeah bought the score. but anyway so that was the other thing because because it's if it's just physical you know we don't really even need to play the game you just get your analytics guys on both teams and then they come up with analytics and okay that team wins Cause they've got all this and that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and there's these intangibles that unless you played at a high level under pressure when the game's on the line, you don't realize how much, uh, those intangibles come into play. So anyway, that was setting up, you know, um, that, um, that first playoff run. And so there were, there were different factors. And then you got Butchie, like we knew Butchie from, um, LA and Butchie was no slug. Like we, you know, obviously we played against him. I was a goalie. You know, they had Marcel Dion, but Butchie was, Butchie was really slick. And the thing about Butchie, and he, he brought his personality in the, the locker room right away. He was very confident. Like you looked at him and he had that goofy helmet <laughs> and, and there were some other things about Butchie that you think that's not that impressive, but he had a presence. Both on and off the ice, and we right away not only took to him and said, "Hey, um, you know, you, we want you to be a big part of this team." We we basically said, I mean, in, in our own minds, you know, you really are the leader. You know, you really are going to be Moses and lead us out of this wilderness. And and he and he he accepted that. And you know, Butch had a really good sense of humor. Uh, and the thing about Butch was Andrew. He was he was so much tougher than uh, people realize. When I say yeah. tough, I mean taking the wax and the hacks and the spears. You know, I don't know if it was two teams. I know Boston said it, and maybe maybe it was O'Reilly or the or the reputation was that you could intimidate the Islanders, and and I don't know why. I know it was from '78,
0: right, from the Maple Leaf series, right?
1: Yeah, but they knocked Trotch out. I mean, it was. And I'm not going to get on in, on the refereeing, but oh, what you what they got away with that series, but that's fine. You yeah. know that was hockey, but um, but you could not, you could not intimidate Butch Goring from doing exactly what he wanted on the ice. And you know Butchie's r- was really smart hockey player. Don't get me wrong, Troch was tougher. Trotch was a terrific centerman in another way, mm-hmm. but but the slickness the the inner, off, mostly offensive hockey sense that Butchie had was second to none. So, you know, he he could have been the MVP that year. There were just so many players that stepped up and, you know, and so.
0: Right. Um, and, and and he wound up winning the con Smythe in 81. It was Brian Trottier in, in 80 who won it. Um, okay, good. Yeah. Good. Could, could I just circle back to, to Denny for one quick second? How, sure. how important was it for Denny and, and the team that, that Bill Torrey reacquired Jean Potvin uh, before the season and, and what he brought in and, you know, maybe how he, you know, helped Denny out a little bit? Um, yeah, I, I, I
1: mean, I, I talked to Johnny about that. You know, he's been sick and we talked and I asked him how all that unfolded. You know, and if you know he'd been traded to Cleveland,
0: right? No anyway. one, no one wanted to go to Cleveland, <laughs> right? Right,
1: exactly. Uh, and so he was going to retire, but but it was it was for Denny, but I, but but it was also for um, the team. Like I said to uh, excuse me, John. That year, and we weren't making a lot, but John was maybe making I don't know hundred twenty five thousand or something back then. You know that was. Yeah. I said, Johnny, you know that you're probably the highest paid comedian in the New York area <laughs> because he was there for comic relief. He knew that he he just was funny and he could rally the guys positive. Obviously, it was you know to to help Denny maybe settle down or or whatever the chemistry two brothers have. Yeah. But it was much bigger than that. Honestly, Andrew, it was much, much bigger. And then, you know, Jean could move the puck and shoot, you know. And so he it wasn't like he just came in and, you know, just was a voice in the locker room or off the ice. I mean, when he played, he did pretty well. So I think it was important for him, uh, Jean, uh, Dennis foremost, but it, it was also important you know, for all of us, John just was was just fun guy to have and uh, encouraging, and you know, and he could, I don't know, he could he could laugh at himself. That was another thing. I think he taught Denny to laugh at himself, to be a little more, you know, self deprecating, or you know, and I, I think that's what helped Denny too. You know, if Denny would get a little full of himself, oh, you know, oh, I and mean, we got like guys would say, oh, Denny, you're full of it. Da-da-da-da-da. Whereas before he made that appeal, you were a little intimidated. But but that's what I mean about an open, honest uh, group. You know, we haven't even gotten to Gary Howe and Lorne Henning. And, yeah. I mean, it was on and on. Johnny Tudelli. I mean, find a hole. There wasn't a, a weakness on that team. I mean, Gary Howe won two cups. And I mean, him and Bobby Nye were like, uh, the Bruce brothers. I, I mean they just punished. I remember, Oh jeez. When you could run and jump and almost charge and hit from behind. We we didn't have to do it but we we could and did at times and
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things Pat Calabria was, was saying to me was what made that, that first cup winning team so special, uh, you know, certainly among the four, was for the most part a large portion of the team had really been together since the start. And, you know, that was probably the only one of the four really where you could, you know, it was so many of the original pieces. Obviously, you go to the Colorado Rockies the following season and, uh, you know, some other pieces leave, some new pieces like Brent Sutter come in. But that 80 team really was like, it was like other than Billy Harris and Dave Lewis, it was like the gang's all here. You know, and and obviously Eddie Westfall, right?
1: No, you're absolutely right. And, Andrew, that's why the blow was softened for me. I mean, I I realized, you know, it wasn't the one game we won the cup. It was building it up. And uh, so so I was satisfied and, you know, but you're right. It was the same group. And, but you know what happened was, and it'll happen again this year. It happens every year with teams. Andrew, again, this is an inside thing that you have to play to know. But when you're sitting on the bench and you're thinking and you're watching and you've played so many games, you know bounces of the puck, getting breaks. And the worst cliche to say in hockey, except in a real general sense, is you make your own breaks. Yeah, you kind of do, but it's not like football where you've got set plays and you can march up and down. So we um, were playing Philly and, you know, game six... We did get an offside goal, granted. Right, right. There was a questionable high stick, you know, on the shot. I think Dwayne tipped it. But then we are up four to two going into the third, as you know, and they tie us. Yeah. But here is the difference: as we watched this playoff run, this is what I'm talking about with the momentum on our side. Everybody left that room believing that we were going to win. I. I, there's something I know, Andrew, unless you play it, they'll call it confidence. Um, you know, Dick Irvin, senior, he said in hockey, there's an unseen hand. And it means you can shoot the puck wide, can hit a shin pad and go in the net. You can make a great play and shot. Goalie can stop it.
0: So. Or, or 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 Kenny Morrow shoots one off Gary Howard's backside, and and you get back in a game, right? Exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly. You you look at Johnny Tanelli's tie goals. It just it's a sequence of events that that wasn't just working hard, but anyway. But the players know it. The players know it. I guarantee you, St. Louis felt it. But um, so you know, that was the other thing about that team we didn't feel like the years before and i think that's why the the, uh the the la series was so important when they won the second game and it's one one going back to la then it was crunch time it was almost like we had to win game three we couldn't let that feeling you know seep through the door that oh no here we go again. We're gonna, you know, yeah, and and um and that was good. And I I remember on the bench, it was one minded. Like Al wasn't a great orator. I mean, he said great inside things. Don't get me wrong, but you know, he wouldn't go on and on and tell you this and that. But on the bench, and I remember being a part of the bench. We we got behind in in a game two against um uh Buffalo it was critical. We would just say, "Stay with it. It's gonna, it's gonna go our way." Stay with. Like I know it sounds stupid, but it was verbal. When people, when teams go quiet, sometimes that's bad. Not always, because sometimes people are just mouthing, you know, Andrew and just saying stuff, but they don't really believe it. Right. But, but when you get quiet and you're nervous on top of it, oh boy, yeah, the negative thoughts come bombarding in your head. But we, we just kept. Kind of that thing about, you know, just keep going. We're not going to be denied. So, um, a lot of a lot of under the surface stuff was really going on, and um, you know, we, we were—I mean, we were the better team. We were the best team out of all those teams. Although Boston was bad, um, so it's not like we stole the cup, but.
0: One of the things she was telling me was obviously you win game six, but the Flyers were such a good home team. You guys desperately didn't want to go back to Philly for a game seven.
1: No, you're right, but you know, and that's kind of after the fact. I mean, you kind of know that. Yeah. Would you say that about um, uh, St. Louis last year? Remember they were lost game six? Yeah. And you think, oh, they're done psychologically. It's not as cut and dried but but there was some of that. you did not yeah. want to go back, yeah, uh, And the other thing was, I think you know, getting those two goals in the first period, I mean, we did get some breaks. we We knew that um, you know momentum could switch benches. and so but I don't think I don't think we were, you know the years before we might have been, oh, what if, oh no, we don't want that to happen. You know, because we didn't. Don't get me wrong. Before the game, you're thinking, we got to win this because we don't want to go back to Philly. But in the heat of the moment, in between the third and overtime, you're not thinking all week. You know what I
0: mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're I know. <laughs>
1: so, you're so involved, Andrew, that you're of one-minded. But
0: when you look back, you think, oh, I'm glad we didn't have to go back. <laughs> there was such a buildup, uh, you know, amongst the fan base. To, to get to the cup final, especially, you know, with the disappointment against the Leafs and then the disappointment against Rangers. the Rangers. What do you remember about that, that game three, that first Stanley Cup final game at Nassau Coliseum? What was the atmosphere like? Was it just, you know, uh, you know, kind of a, a culmination of all those years of wanting to get to that spot?
1: Well, I, I think you've got to look at what long island was i mean they'd had the ducks they they'd been influenced by the rangers and all the fans Either the the, you know hockey fans i mean they either liked the rangers or they hated them and i i think you know they got spoiled earlier yeah when they thought we were gonna win and the other thing was we had a very entertaining team and i'm I'm not criticizing the uh, rangers but not only were we skilled but we had Sutter and I mean we rock people. I remember going into that that Coliseum, and that place would just reverberate. And so it it was there. And then of course, the Ranger uh, the Devils fans may be thinking, well, the Rangers it's been like forty two years or whatever it was (laughs) was forty years. We better be a little careful. But when we got to the finals and we won. Didn't we, we won one game in Philly, right?
0: Uh, yeah, you split the first two games. Yeah. You you won the first game in overtime, and then I think eight. game two was like eight to three. They really handed it to you coming into game three.
1: Yes, yes. And and again, I mean, the, the Islanders startup fans because, you know, no, no expansion team by the third year is going to the semi-finals um, or... or Porter finally, we lost to the Flyers, we could have beaten them, you know, so, I I mean, this anticipation of us, you know, winning a cup, especially ahead of the Rangers, had been simmering for a long time, and um, so the fans were, they were seasoned, you know, they weren't just, like, uh, honestly, I'm not just saying, Andrew, those fans, oh, you went into that Nassau Coliseum, and... The positive vibrations, and it was just—it um, was just the best I, I, that you could hope for. I mean, the Canadians, yeah, they had the history and all that, but the the Islander fans were supplying uh, 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 an airstream underneath us as we as we hit the ice that just had us flying and. You know, and there again, I'm just saying guys were seasoned veterans, you know, they, I guess the, big, the biggest thing is the fear was gone, the determination and almost anger, like guys, the good thing maybe for us was Philly was, you know, they were going to try to rough us up and they brought out that, that part of the motivation, that anger and the little bit of physical intimidation. So I mean, obviously, Andrew, you can look back and say, "Oh no, we were confident through it all." But no, I mean, there was some apprehension, but by then we had won and overcome like so many games. You know, the the LA first round, but but standing up to Boston in Game Two. Yeah. My goodness, Andrew, fights going on. I remember Gary Howard and and uh, and cashman wayne cashman just slugging it out the referees are just too many fights and they just got tired and they went and held each other's sweater leaned against the boards and took a breath you know just got some wind and said okay you're ready to go again o'reilly i mean my point is we were pretty battle-hardened by then you know we had been tested and we hadn't really we'd bent but we hadn't broken so i don't think we were thinking of breaking you know, going into Game Three, um, we we just knew we were in for it, and uh, you know, so but but the fans, Andrew, I guess probably the spectrum in when they won the cup was similar. Yeah. But oh my, the Islander fans, so if they were, oh, <laughs> I mean they, they were New York at its. Honestly, they were New York fans at their very best. And I know you can say that about football and basketball and Knicks. But the Islander fans almost like were saying, hey, we're not the city. We're not like the big shots from New York City, Manhattan. But you know what? We got something bigger going on out here in the island. And we're going to bring it. And they did. And wow, it was
0: it was deafening. Anyway yeah no and and you know I, I know coaches say this all the time across any sport uh, game three is always the pivotal and and often the most important game of any series you know it, it kind of determines which way the whole series goes why well, I, I
1: think it is one of the most important yeah you know it, it is and no question, and then you know game then if you go to game five, you know they could throw that in there, but yeah. You know, um, yeah, so I, no, I, I, but you know, the thing is, Andrew, uh, we're, we were pretty simple and players are pretty simple. I mean, now that I was in the media, I look at all the stats and the analytics or the, the patterns and all that. And But as a player, you don't really get into that much. Mm-hmm. You really don't. I mean, because like Smitty didn't think, you know, and those guys, boss, you know, they, you just didn't think of that. You just thought what you were going to do to beat them, and you know. And like I say, I, I don't. I guess the thing I would say about this whole thing about how big the games were and what we were thinking, there were no distractions. Yeah. By them. you know, there was no, you know, deflecting what you should feel and what you should be focusing on. And of course, Al was that way. Al told me the next year and. We we're talking and he said, "You know, Chico, I coached in terms of coaching. Don't get me wrong. He he was so humble. I probably coached less in the playoffs than I do during the regular season." You know, and, and last year he said, "You know, it just took on a life of itself. I mean, every player was a coach. Every every the trainers were more involved. Um you know, and you think of you, you could accomplish something big." You need everybody on board, and I, I think that was that was the factor. And it wasn't um, it wasn't a cautious. We weren't cocky, but it wasn't like we were. Oh, I don't know if we can do that. You know what I mean? Sometimes yeah. apprehensive. Um, so, not that you didn't have doubts. That would be disrespectful. But as I say, if you go back to us players looking at our team. And I could say to you, you got Bobby Bourne and Johnny Tonelli on your second line. You know, Wayne Merrick, who is a speed demon and, and Brian Trotche and Bobby Nystrom and Gary Howell and Lauren Henning. I mean, the defense, you know, you got, it was just, so we knew, we, we knew how, how good we were. Not that that means you're going to win because you, that's when you really get upset, but we had been upset. So, You know we didn't we didn't underestimate that part
0: of it, but hey, if if I could circle back to Smitty just real quickly, did you ever watch him and go, oh my God, I can't believe he did that? Not not in terms of a save he made, but just you know how aggressive he was or kind of the stuff he was stirring up and then you know his teammates would have to come and defend him and you know uh, and, and that kind of stuff did you did you ever shake your head at that or did you just go that's that's the way he plays
1: you know the one thing that Smithy got in trouble with and of course it's the Billy Smith rule now yeah he was, he was taping his stick down and he he would butt end players in front uh the reasons I didn't understand at times, but um, I, I knew what he would say. I did ask him one time and he's always always bugging me and I thought, okay, the only time I questioned him was when he butt ended Dave Saminko <laughs> and Dave and I'm yelling at Smitty, look out, look out And Dave Saminko grabbed him and flipped that helmet off
2: yeah.
1: and he tattooed him. But the thing was Smitty. Him going and doing that some of that crazy like say if he, he he charged somebody, you'd think what the heck was what did he do that for? He could have got beat or you know, whatever, it didn't affect him. And I think it got to the point where Al and Bill realized you can't put a saddle on him. You can you can you know, maybe you can put a saddle, but he's still gonna start bucking once in a while. And he he just And everybody just accepted. And Smitty, I think, knew it, Andrew. If The one thing Smitty knew was that he could do that stuff. There were other things, too, that didn't make him your prototypical goalie. He could do that stuff as long as he got the job done. Right. And and that was a huge motivating factor for him. Hmm. He knew he had to get the job done or all this stuff would cave in. I mean there were times i mean some of his poke checks seemed ill-advised but you know he it's just what i'm saying like he it wasn't a calculated thing with smitty he just you know you're talking about talking about people they just seem to make the right decision about 80 percent of the time yeah under pressure and you'd ask him, and they'd say i i don't know it just came to me i don't know i just and that was smitty so you know, because Smitty could be kind of feisty in practice, too, and, and there was some dust stuffs between Smitty and some of the guys in practice, you know, <laughs> yeah. But what are you going to do, like, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know, I mean, Smitty was the most unique athlete I have ever been around. The most unique and you know, Andrew, he won four straight Stanley Cups and played great, but he doesn't get the credit mainly yeah. because I think of some of those antics and his relationship with the press. Yeah. And even a little bit with the fans. I but he you know, I just saw Smitty this spring. He doesn't care. Yeah. That's <laughs> nice Smitty, hey, he said to me, I said, Well what are you up to, Smitty? Oh, you know me, Chico. Doing the same thing I always done. You know, I'm never gonna change. So
0: Yeah. Hey, you mentioned, you know, Smitty didn't have the best relationship with the media. I mean, now that you're a media member, I I was just curious, like just how different it is today compared to back then in terms of, you know, how the media interacted with the Islanders team and the relationships you guys could or could not have with with the reporters like Pat who are around the team all the time. You know, just how different does it seem to you now?
1: well it's like night and day because one thing they have to talk to you right yeah. that's kind of the mo you know yeah. and you know and you guys i mean the mainstream media i mean sometimes they might go a little overboard in re- reporting something or writing it that's derogatory towards the player but not not very often. Remember, we were coming out of a period where every single our Dave Anderson of the Times, whatever it was, you just heard the glowing things about uh, players. You never heard, like Mickey Mantle. You never heard, yeah, what he did off. So my point was, we were in this transition, and I think Smitty got criticized. If you criticize Smitty, then you could pretty much say, okay. Our relationship probably not going to develop very far.
2: Well. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Right? we just put the brakes on it. And again, I'm saying Smitty is black and white. Yeah. You are for me, or you are against me. It's it's why you love Smitty, or you don't like Smitty. What I remember thinking was, especially with Pat Northway, I, I said, "No, these guys have a story. And if I give them something in depth, and I, you know, being a goalie, I was more." thinking below the surface where Smitty would just be say, thinking surfacing. Yeah. No, one's not right or wrong. Cause obviously he was right. But I would think if I do that, then they might, they, cause you guys are good writers. They might write it, but I sound even better, smarter, more, more in depth or more, uh, you know, insight. But with Smitty, he didn't want to do that. He did not want to have a close relationship with the media. And I'll tell you this. The other thing about Smitty, Smitty did not know the other players inside out. If you went up to him and said, well, tell me, you know, what what are some of the, the terrific uh, insights on Guy Lafleur? Smitty wouldn't, huh. wouldn't really have an answer. He said to me, after Dave Saminko, he said, Oh Chico, who was that? I said, Smitty. That's the toughest guy in the league. He just knocked out Ronnie Delorme. He pounded some guy from Edmonton. I said, you just took on the tough guy. Oh, yeah. Boy, could he hit. And I thought, Smitty, you got to know who you're bad ending, but you can't. Just- you know what I mean? So, again, it's a beautiful thing, but it's a frustrating thing to people that don't understand that level of, I don't know what it is, that that desire, that obsession to win, to do the one thing that athletes can do. You know, like yeah. you know, players think they're going to retire and do something else great. I remember, I won't tell you, who—to one of our guys on our team, he, he's a really good player, yeah, I might retire. You know, be, and I'm thinking, this is the best you're ever going to do. Don't retire. Just keep doing this. Because when you get out of this game, you don't realize how tough all those other terrific people are, whether you're a writer or whatever field you're in. We we self-glorified ourselves. Yeah, listen to the way people talk about how great I am. I'm sure I can be great in other fields. And I was one that thought, nope. And Smitty was too.
2: Nope.
1: This is your gift. This is the gift God's given you. You better use it here. And I think Smitty just thought that way. So um, I think the press, when well, they tiptoed in, you know, they tiptoed in to ask him questions, and he would give you some – he got a little bit better as it went on. I mean, I remember when they tried to interview him after
0: after uh, he slashed Wayne Gretzky in the playoff. Right.
1: <laughs> and they wanted him, and he said, yeah – Sure, there's a lot of people up in Canada turning over in their beds tonight <laughs> yeah. wondering, what's Smitty doing? Uh. And he just, honestly, he didn't, you, I don't know, I don't know what to say. I, 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 I remember I said to him one time, I said, Smitty, you know when you're in a slump, and he said, Look, Chico, you know, I, I don't like that that term. I said, no, you're right. I said, okay, I'll put it this way. Okay, you know when you're not playing quite as well as you have other times, (laughs) because I couldn't say slump. Yeah, he's okay, and then so that's. But that was an insight into how he manufactured or how he kept his positive thinking. He just didn't let it creep in, and he did not. He did not need the press to stroke his ego or to compliment him. The press kind of needed him.
0: Yeah. They,
1: yeah. they weren't going to get much. Yeah. But he just kept doing it. Yeah. He kept winning it. And, and, you know, during the regular season, he didn't even care if he played. Like, I played more games the year. I think we won the cup. Yeah. He, he said, I don't care, Chico. He says, there's only one time for me. That's money's on the line. And,
0: you know, what, what do you remember uh, about that parade? down Hempstead Turnpike, and, uh, you know, after you won the Cup, what what was that like, that celebration, and, uh, you know, everyone coming out to see you, you know, parading around with the Cup?
1: i got to be honest with you, there was like a lot of people, as you know. A yeah. lot of people. But it was, I mean, and that was a really good feeling, but it was a little bit, little bit, what's the word, uh, unconventional. It was like, Where's the parade gonna go? It's not like you're going down the streets and, the, you know, the confetti's coming out of the windows or, you ticker tape or, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was, it was like more of a just a, a love fest, just like you went to Woodstock or something. You know, you were just going to this big celebration. There wasn't. I mean, obviously, it was well planned, but it wasn't. It wasn't. I don't know. Uh, it wasn't like most. You know championship parades like downtown Boston. It was, it was just a bunch of people and friends and people who are just so happy we finally got there, getting together and you know what I mean. Like it was, it was a little. It wasn't confusing, but I don't know the word Andrew. In terms of a, it wasn't. You couldn't say it was a memorable parade because I mean it was, but if you know what I mean. Yeah, Like, you're going down through big buildings and they're lining the streets and they're in the windows of the buildings and hollering and throwing. it. Like I say, it was just more of kind of a, a love fest for all the people who had waited so long to kind of get together and celebrate. And it was a nice deal. I mean, you know, they were cheering and they were complimentary and we all felt good about it, you know. But... Um,
0: yeah, no, it's it's not the Canyon of Heroes down in Lower Manhattan or like you say, you know, Boston puts on a good show, but uh I mean, maybe it's just a little bit more Long Island because it was a a real community type feel to it. <laughs> you know what? You're right. It was very appropriate.
1: I mean, that's the best term. It was appropriate for who Long Islanders were and we weren't embarrassed by it. It, w- it wasn't anything like that. I go, this is a rinky-dink break. It wasn't like that. It was just, you had to look at it and say, oh, okay, this is different. Yeah, This is not what you've envisioned, like Montreal, downtown, St. Louis, Toronto. I mean, you just go down, Philly. It's just, that's what you did. But we didn't have a downtown, so that was okay. We were proud to be, you know, what's, what's really interesting when you think of... um of, um well I think we're that's a good question were there any Americans on that team
0: um well okay. Kenny oh, Kenny, yeah, Kenny Dave Morrow w- obviously, right
1: yep Dave Longman.
0: yeah yeah
1: that's right um and up front uh, Anders Keller was sweet no but, but my um but my point is when you have got you know a Kenny from a small town I mean, for us, it was appropriate because that's kind of who we were as players. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't the golden era of, like, the hype that you got now with, you know, all the players are celebrities. They hang with celebrities. Everything's, like, big, big time or it's a disappointment. But for us, it was like, yeah, that's who we are. You know, this parade could be happening in Moose Jaw, you know, or um, Val Marie or Swift Current or... uh you know what I mean? It was just yeah. a lot of small town boys that, you know, we just, I mean, it was, it was, it was really a—I—I I, I know it sounds cliche and everything, but I mean, it really was a pretty humble group. I, I, say that, Andrew, because, you know, Bobby Nye, you know, what he, you know, what he, Mr. Islander, what he did, and Gary Howe, these guys were just no ego, no pretenses, so, you know, the parade was really, really terrific. And, you know, the one thing I've said, I didn't wish you would have asked Butchie, but it was Memorial Day. Yeah. When we won the night after we won it. And I'm living in Oyster Bay in East Norwich, and it's the Memorial Day parade. And my wife and I, we only walked a block to be on the parade route. And um, it's etched in my mind. So it's coming from Oyster Bay, and then to get up into East Norwich, you come up this hill. So you could hear the band and, you know, bands, the parade um, goers, you know, cheering. And I look, and coming over the ridge, (laughs) carrying the flag, you know, what do you call the guy who's the
0: center? Well, the flag bearer, right? No, but for a
1: parade, he's the grand
0: marshal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. grand marshal. Grand marshal. I look.
1: The Grand Marshal, Butch Glory <laughs> in his same suit, those same big, high, blue shoes he wore. And he's leading it, walking up the hill, carrying that flag. And I just howled and <laughs> yelled at him. and You know, like, I said, Butchie, this was a year later. And I said, gee, how, how did that happen? So Butchie just said, you know, we had been, we'd been hanging there for the playoffs and all that. So he, you know, we were at Bill Torres for a long time. We, you know, it was getting late. So he said, I just thought I'd go over there and see some of the boys, you know, and celebrate. Well, they were there and then it was seven o'clock in the morning, eight. And they just said, hey, Butchie, why don't you be, be the Grand Marshal? You know, that we got the parade coming up. You know, some of the firemen. there. <laughs> anyway, so they talked Butchie into it. Yeah. But, and him in that blue, he had that powder blue suit, oh my. <laughs> but it was, it was just, you know, again, it was just, how many guys today would do that, really? right? <laughs> you could grab and say, hey, would you be the grand marshal in a few hours, whatever. But just the last thing is, Andrew, the moment that Bobby I scored the goal. Yeah. In everyone's hearts, it, it was, in terms of, in terms of spontaneous moments, you couldn't, you you can't describe it. You cannot describe what we were feeling because it finally happened. And again, that was one of the beauties of waiting for something or working for something and then finally getting it through struggles is when it happens. Oh my goodness. And there was kind of a delay. Um, but it was the greatest feeling of Mindlessness, and I always say that's why. After the uh, a team wins the championship, the first one, yeah, the players sound like idiots because it's true. You don't think the cerebral part of your brain is shut down; it's just emotion. So you say, oh, the greatest feeling. I love these guys. Oh, he's great." You know, it sounds low. I don't even know sometimes why they do those interviews. It's different <laughs> now, but you were just you were just all emotion. You had no logical thought process going through your brain. It was total relief and excitement rolled into this just big ball of emotion that was coming in waves. And I think, Andrew, that's why players like to stay up all night after they win the championship. Yeah. Because once you go to sleep and you wake up, a little bit of that is gone. And then the next night, a little more and a little more. And by the time you get to the fall and people are saying, can you do it again? That moment of winning the cup is now kind of in your rearview mirror. You kind of remember, but you, you can't really draw it back. It's a once-in-a-lifetime moment that only first-time uh, champion winners have. And that's why, like most things in life, that's why number one is is
0: always so special. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's... You know, whenever I talk to any of the players from the team, they, they always point to that 80 thing just because, you know, just because of everything that went into it. You know, the build-up and, you know, it, it was special because it hadn't been done and, you know, everything you just said. It, you know, great time for everyone involved.
1: It really was, Andrew.
0: And, yeah.
1: you know, and then, yeah, you know, it's... We have our reunions and, you know, there's just that bond and, uh, you know, it's, 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 hard to look at us now, all of us old and think we, we really did it. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, the aging process can be so cruel yeah. in an athletic sense. I'm saying in a physical sense, yeah. no, not, but,
0: uh Listen, I I appreciate all your input on this stuff. It's always great chatting with you. You tell some great stories.
1: Well, thank you, Andrew. And, you know, that's all I have.
0: Okay, well...
1: Andrew. All we have are stories.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Hey, listen...
1: All all I'll tell you, Andrew, because I've heard of... When we do talk and I tell you stories, I promise you I will not embellish them. Like when I tell some of those stories... Like, really? You're not making this up, but I won't do that to you, Andrew.
0: No, the stories are good enough without the embellishing. uh... (laughs) Yeah,
1: that's
0: the truth. All right, Chico. Have a good one, Andrew. Hey, listen, all the best to you and the family. Stay
2: well.